Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 246, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, could watching Ted Lasso teach you to be a better leader? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode will offer us some real-world perspective on just how equal our education system is here in the United States. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm pretty fantastic. The month of June has just flown by, and we start school in less than a month. I don't think I've really had a break. <laughs> so, yeah, how is it being in the administration office during the summer? I mean, is it like you nine to five still, or is can you work remotely? Yeah, so? it's it's pretty high paced for my department because we wrapped up a year. We were running summer reading program, and at the same time, prepping for the return of teachers, which happens on the seventeenth. So, not a lot of time. Yeah, it's a quick summer. I know. Hopefully you'll be able to get some vacation in there. Is there a point where you yeah. don't have to burn? Like, I don't know how it works for you. Like uh, teachers are naturally off, right? But like, right. They're off contract. But are you like, do you have to use vacation days in the summer? Like, is that kind of how I you're do? Structured? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to take a few days starting tomorrow, Good. visit a girlfriend in Baltimore. So I'll take a couple of days. But um, this summer, I just really didn't schedule any big vacations. It's just a lot to do. Right. Um, so it'll be okay. Next yeah. summer, though, I've already got my eyes set on a couple of things I want to do. And you need to start planning if you if you can. I don't know if they'll give you that's off, right. but that fall break that's a little maybe extended. Maybe you can, you know, get something in there. I don't know. I always like that. Just break. resting is like the best for me. Just not having to leave my house. <laughs> I hear you. Hey, so um, we were talking before the show. I was asking you, have you ever seen Ted Lasso, or do you even know what Ted Lasso is? I'm going to tell you, nope. Okay, all right. So Ted Lasso is a TV show on Apple TV, right? And it's um, mm-hmm. Jason Sudeikis, who was originally from the SNL background, but he's very funny. Um, and they created this TV show about a uh, coach. And he is a successful football coach of college mm-hmm. in the United States. And then he gets hired to be a soccer coach in Europe, okay? And okay. The, the reason I'm... I, Okay, let me stop for a second. There might be some season one spoilers in this conversation, but I don't think it's anything that's like groundbreaking spoiler. It's going to be more about like the personality of Ted Lasso. But anyhow, he he gets hired by um, somebody who runs a soccer team, a professional soccer team in Europe, who's really trying to sabotage the team for other reasons, which you'd find out in the show. So I think I have seen a commercial about it. His hair is short and sandy brown, and I can picture his face looking a little dumbfounded in a couple of the scenes. (laughs) Right. Yes. And so what's so cool about Ted Lasso is if you are a leader of anybody, you should watch this show. Like his character 
um, has such powerful leadership skills that like my son who runs a, a small business, I was like, watch Ted Lasso, not just because it's a good show, but because you will learn how to treat your employees better and how to navigate them through tough times and so forth. And that's really why I wanted to have this conversation. And and there was actually um, an article that was written in, let's see, it was written in Educational Leadership, and it is titled, What Ted Lasso Has to Teach Us About the Holding Environment. And it goes into like all these different skills of leadership that Ted Lasso has. So really, I encourage anybody to watch it. I will say, if you don't like crude humor sometimes, maybe not the show for you. It is, you know, <laughs> it's not the show that you watch and with your child in the room. it's gotta be the show for me. <laughs> right, and, and it's really like, I even watched one episode, there's one episode that starts season two that like I was uncomfortable watching with my 17-year-old in the room and he, you know, but anyways, it is, um, uh, there's a lot of sexual humor and stuff like that. So, gotcha. but anyhow, put that aside, the leadership lessons in the show are incredible. So I just kind of wanted to go through some of the points that this author had about Ted Lasso and what the takeaways were, okay? So here's kind of the list of things that Ted Lasso does that should be emulated maybe in your school. All right, so first one is express care. He says, Lasso is the very epitome of caring. He is dependable, he listens, he makes people feel known and valued, he is warm, and he is encouraging, including baking cookies for his boss every day and making sure the team celebrates a Nigerian player's birthday when he's feeling far from home. I mean, that's that growth mindset, just being kind just because, but I think it's twofold that hit that characteristic that you just described, I would love to have that, you know, in my principal if I was a teacher, but then at the same time, I'd want to see some of those characteristics in teachers if I was was a student in their classroom so definitely needed in schools yeah it's it's one thing whenever you're like talking about tv shows i used to watch a lot of the west wing and, and mm-hmm. that was not so much like it was more like people interacting in the west wing like it was very fast and pithy pithy and everything was not hey how are you doing how's your family what about this can i do this for you it was very much straight to business yep. um and then the opposite side of this is Ted Lasso and how he, um, I don't want to say manipulates, but how he cares for people in order to win them over um, and and how far that can actually go. But it's a really important skill, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really shapes the climate in your building. And it can be learned, too. Like, if you're not good mm-hmm. at it, you can practice it, and, and I think it's important. All right, next next point, challenge growth. He says, Lasso pushes players' performance in ways that are non-threatening and indirect. And, and for example, he says he gives the book a wrinkle in time to the toughest, most macho player on the team, who then ultimately reads it to his niece and starts learning about the book's message about taking the mm-hmm. mantle of leadership. But just by, you know, kind of doing that, he, he was winning over that person and getting that person to grow. Well, I love that too, because as a leader, you have to get to know everybody's strengths, weaknesses, their likes, dislikes, and then you have to fuse all of those things together to get the team to work as one. I, so that's a great strategy. Yeah, I agree. I like um, sometimes even you got to be careful which personality test you give to maybe like your mm-hmm. lieutenants, for lack of a better, or your silent leaders. But that's right. I think it's good to know what their strengths are. So you kind of know where you either need to bring somebody else in to balance them out or kind of work and get that person to grow to have a more balanced strength there. Next list is uh, provide support. He says, Ted Lasso is all about encouragement. 
Uh, he organizes an ad hoc support group called the Diamond Dogs that convenes when a teammate has a personal problem and they all try to get together and find a solution. And it's really kind of funny. It's just like a group of guys who talk about like girl problems or, you know, wife problems or, or whatever. Yeah, but that sounds so cool because one of the things that's a really big topic right now is the emotional well-being of teachers. And of course, I'm going to relate everything back to the classroom. Right. And we, um, and, and we have all of these uh the curriculum, the standards, the activities, lots of discussion about social emotional learning, but that's all geared towards students. And one of the things that's really important right now is for leaders, not just in the education sector, but, you know, generally to really pay attention to the emotional well-being of their employees. Um, burnout comes much faster. Uh, employee attendance can be impacted. So the fact that he knows he has to tap in and provide support, which is actually one of the most repeated responses from teachers in surveys that they don't feel supported is why they leave certain schools and school districts. So I think that's huge. I've, I've got to give a shout out to my brother. He, um, he's always managed a lot of people. He's owned restaurants and, and he has a cheesecake yeah. company now and so forth. And which I, is my favorite, by the way, right? Cotton blues cheesecake, shout out to them. Uh, it's at your local grocery store probably. Um, but anyhow, so he would always kind of give me management advice and I'd watch him manage people. And so when I was kind of running a newsroom, I had to learn to be more like him in the sense that like people would come to me with their personal problems. And I was kind of like, can we just work? Like, why am I inheriting? All your oh my problems? Like, it's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, we've got a big job here to do. We're running a newsroom, but I would watch him and like somebody would come with a personal problem. Like, Hey, I can't, I can't work today. I can't be a hostess today. Cause I'm really having trouble finding um, daycare or child care. So he would go and like trade restaurant gift cards for childcare, like he found a daycare and was like, "Hey, I will give you two, three, four, five hundred dollars a month, and you know, you come here all the time, just so I can get this employee to work in this shift." That like it was like above and beyond oh, what you think people wow. would do, and I'd be like, "Wow, okay, I, I just never." So see, like that's a know. story we need to see on the local news. That's huge. Oh, he would do stuff like that all the time. I mean, he would get he would help people when they would get a DUI, like help them find an attorney and stuff. I mean, maybe not the best, but you know, he was always helping his employees out in whatever way possible. You know, so uh, yeah. shout out to your brother for real. That just touched my heart. Yeah, no, it's, it's people don't impressive. go over and beyond like that. And, you know, you just never know what somebody's going through just to try to make it to the job. Right. Exactly. That's the truth. Just getting to the job. And it's in everyone's benefit because he needs that employee there. He needs them to you know, be right. consistent. So anyhow, it just kind of takes extra effort sometimes. And it, I had to learn that from him. Next uh, topic is uh, share power. Despite Ted Lasso's natural talent as a leader, um, he's not a soccer coach, right? Like he was originally a football coach. He was a coach, though, which is kind of the key word. So he's strategic and calling upon the talents of his compadres, including mm -hmm. um, like a lowly kit man, a guy who just like handles the uniforms, who it mm -hmm. turns out actually has all sorts of skills. So he, he really does kind of share that power and doesn't expect to be the one overarching force in the locker room. Now, let me tell you about that. You can be the greatest leader by empowering other people. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be out front. You don't have to have your hands in everything. And you also got to share the credit when success happens within the team or the organization. Help those other people feel good about the work that they're doing. You just have no idea what that does for the team and the organization itself. I absolutely love that phrase, share the power. All right. Next one is nurture belonging. Um, it says Lasso makes everyone feel 
part of the team's gradual uh, improvement by suppressing negativism and raising performance, well-being, and self-worth. That's an area I got to work on right there. Okay, how so? So it's just just that last statement you made about suppressing negativity. I have to work on not letting negative things or negative people really infiltrate my being. You know, I can get really down or frustrated about things and I have to work on letting it roll right off my back and keep pushing, you know, for the greater good. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's hard sometimes. And and I always analyze things. So often I will see the pitfalls um, and... I need to sometimes if I'm leading people not be so overt about the pitfalls and be acknowledge uh-huh. them. It's kind of like, no, we can, we can figure this out. Like, yes, there's pitfalls, but we can figure this out rather than, yeah, that's going to be a problem and kind of announce it and kind of get everybody down in the weeds uh-huh. with me thinking about it. I don't know. It's I'm not a good salesperson in that regard. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying there. One other scene in the show that's pretty popular, and I may even put a little short clip of it in here as we're talking about it. Ted Lasso outsmarts one of the season one villains, so to speak, by exploiting uh, a man's assumption that an American can't possibly be any good at darts. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bullseye. <laughs> good luck. Mm. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, and so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> Which I would have answered, Yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. The whole thing that we want to focus on here is that he has a way to defy assumptions. And the idea is like never judge somebody just by the way they look or where they're from or, or, you know, it's, you know, we're from Mississippi a lot, right? And and when we travel, we often have people make judgments about, you know, what Mississippi's like and and maybe our intelligence or or whatever. It's tough. I love that. The very first word that came to my mind when you um, described that was diversity. And one of the things that we're talking about a lot in education right now is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that little segue is huge when we think about all of the teachers when they enter schools oftentimes they're entering schools that are high poverty that have socioeconomic um you know disadvantages and they've got to be able to relate and make connections to children who come from backgrounds that they know nothing about but not just that you're bringing all these teachers into a building to become one and work as a team 
they all come from different backgrounds too. So that's a really huge challenge for leaders, principals, district leaders, coaches um, who are running teams to really find a way to help people to connect and celebrate differences, whatever they are, Well, because they bring some kind of asset or strength to the team. I'm so glad you said that because actually our guest in our Bright Idea segment is all about equity. Um, He's from inner city, Oakland. He grew up there. He stayed there to change the education system in in that area. Um, So uh, we'll just kind of pivot to that. Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? Yes, I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to offer some real-world perspective about whether or not we have a truly equal education system here in the United States. Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade is a teacher and professor of Latino and Latina studies and race and resistance studies at San Francisco State University. He's also the author of Equality or Equity Toward a Model of Community Responsive Education. Dr. Andrade, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've I've done a lot of diving into your background and and much of what you've been talking about over the past decade or so, uh, and and it really is such an important topic. It's a raw topic. Um, you're speaking to a lot of K through twelve educators on this podcast. Um, a lot of people who have been very much. Uh, tied into the education system, the public education system here in the United States. Um, But you have this um, perspective and data to back it up that says basically public schools were not really designed to be the great equalizer that maybe we think they are. Let's kind of talk about that. Um, It all kind of starts back, I guess, back in 1954, right? Uh, It it precedes 1954. um, And, and even the, the, The comment from Horace Mann that um, public schools uh, will be the great equalizer, you know, long, long precedes that. Um, and, and I think that that um, is, is part of the problem with the conversation about public education in the United States is that we, we are very um, ahistorical and, and largely historically ignorant about the design of public schools Um their intentional, their original intent and purpose, and how those things uh, have carried forward to uh, the the current situation that we find ourselves in public schools. Um, people are familiar with 1954 because um, it uh, is the the year that the Supreme Court legislated the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, and uh, at least on its face, was a, a promise to um, create uh, an equal education system, um, which you know everybody in this country knows has has failed. Um, and uh, you know you you don't need to be a, a professional educator or even somebody that is tuned in to public education um, to to know that that's one of the worst kept secrets in the country is just how how unequal and inequitable our school systems are. Um, you know, you can go to any person on the street and um, ask them if schools that serve poor and working class children and children of color um, are equal to the schools that serve middle class uh, and predominantly white communities. And and the answer will always be no. And I think it's, we should note too, it's like, I've seen you present some data, even when you don't account for race. If you just account for, I guess you would say socioeconomic, poor kids and rich kids. Yeah. Poor kids are failing and rich kids are doing well. Is that, that's correct, right? That's what the data says. Yeah. 
um, it, depending on how you define doing well, like I, I challenge that premise too, but based on the things we measure in school, right? Like reading, writing, math, academic outcomes. Um, yes, there's, it's, if you look at the data in the aggregate, what we have is, is effectively educational apartheid. Um, it's really stunning to see, um, the degree to which, uh, children, low income children, um, are, are failing in our nation's public schools everywhere. And this is the group that can least afford to fail in public schools. And it's, it's a national crisis, the, the degree to which that's happening. Um, and the solutions um, that we've come up with have largely been um, recycled and repetitive. And again, there's, there's no data to suggest that the solutions that we're implementing are, are addressing the problem in any real way. And I think that without a, a commitment to telling the truth about where we really are as a nation in our public school system, there's, there's really no chance that we're going to do any kind of meaningful transformation or change. It, it has to start there. And it's not about pointing the finger or saying, you know, you, you failed here. It, that, that, that doesn't get us anywhere. D- telling the truth is just about laying all the cards on the table, looking at where we really are, um, and then having a conversation about one. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think the history is so important, um, is that when we look at where we are, um, we, we oftentimes end up guessing about how we got there. But if you do a historical analysis of public schools, you understand exactly why we are where we are. They're actually doing precisely what they've been designed to do. And that's the reality. The rhetoric is schools are the great equalizer. There's, there's simply no data to support that claim. So th- the reality is, is that, that schools are radically unequal and they are, um, they're institutionalizing the process by which this nation normalizes um, generational inequality. And that's not democratic. So if we can start there and just say that, okay, that, okay there's, there's a real problem with the way in which our public schools are operating, particularly in poor and working class communities. And then we, then the next logical question for anybody who's really committed to system change is why? Like, why is this, why are these outcomes so persistent? To get to that first point that you're just talking about, though, do you think that there's a lot of the American public, including in the K through 12 education system, that maybe just hasn't seen what you have seen? And what I mean by that is if you grew up in an affluent area and you went to an affluent school and then you um, actually graduated college and you became a teacher and you teach at the affluent, you know, suburban school, you maybe don't see or have that perspective that, you know, there's, there's kids out there who don't have the same opportunities that maybe you had. Um, I mean, how big of that is the problem of just, just not seeing what's happening everywhere? Yeah. I think that, um, that you're right, that there is um, a, a fairly high level of ignorance um, about just how um, inequitable our society is. And, you know, there's a, a, one of the uh, arguably the best known death row, row lawyer in the United States is a guy named Brian Stevenson. 
Um, he wrote a book called Just Mercy, which became a, a Hollywood film. Um, and I, I, I got to share the stage with him several years ago, and, and he said something that I think is 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 relevant to the way in which I tend to answer this question that you're asking, which is, he said that the, the problem with um, our nation's um, attempts to become a truly just and, and pluralistic multiracial democracy is not that we don't have a bunch of really smart, committed, thoughtful, caring people working on that project, because we do. Um, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be counted among, uh, you know, th that crowd. Mm -hmm. um, he says that the, the problem is that um, when we get together to figure that out, we get together around a conference table and we come up with the best possible solutions we can think of to make this right because we know it's not right. And we design all of those interventions based on our own worldview. And what we effectively produce as responses to this crisis is aspirin. And he says, when you hand out aspirin to people that have headaches, it will temporarily relieve the symptoms of the headache, mm -hmm. but it won't stop you from getting headaches because aspirin doesn't treat the root cause of the problem, which is the inequity. So he says that, that if we really are committed to this project, we have to get proximity to the pain. And when we get that proximity, we have to humble up and hush up. We have to stop believing that because we have power and influence and affluence, that we actually know what vulnerable and wounded communities need. The, the group that knows what vulnerable and wounded communities need are vulnerable and wounded communities. Right. We're not going there and looking with true curiosity about what is it that we need to change and transform about the system that we've designed so that it will work for the material conditions of your life and your family. And so I think what's happening is that it's, it's, it, there's a, there's a deep kind of ignorance about just how wide this divide is. And, and I, I think it's a false innocence, right? It's like if affluent communities really wanted to know, then they would know because they have the resources to get that proximity. They have the reason, but, mm -hmm. but why, where's the, where's the national commitment to justice in that way? You know, if, if affluent communities had a massive outbreak of cancer, then they would learn about cancer. Right. But and I think that's the gap we've got to close is that to see that if, if we are truly right, a nation, a, a truly a democratic nation, then the suffering of any community is a national problem. It's unacceptable. It's intolerable in a truly just democracy to have a system that is so persistently inequitable. And I think once affluent communities, and I don't think affluent communities like are going to solve this problem, right? This is, this is a national problem, but I do think that you're, what you're thumbing down on is true that there is, um, you know, it's like, well, schools are cool. They work for me. They work for my kids. Like what's, what's the problem? Why can't these people get their, themselves together? Right. Um, and I think that's the absence of proximity to the, to the real pain points that 
poor and working class families tend to experience. Well, I heard you say something that kind of resonated with me. And and I think and I want you to kind of take this away as I'm, I'm kind of going with it. But you basically were saying like, if, if I grew up in an affluent community, success for me is defined by being around other affluent people when I get older, when I get into the workforce, right? But if you grow up in, say, a poor community, what is success defined as? Yeah, I think that th- that's a really important point to make. It's just the way that we define success, depending on your zip code, um, is problematic, right? Because we actually, and this is what I mean by it's like an apartheid state that you you have basically two worlds. And, and in those two different worlds, you have different definitions of success for students, but we're supposedly applying the same public education system across both of those worlds. So as you said, if you're affluent, um, then you then success for you in school and kind of generally in your life is defined by how closely you can replicate the conditions that you grew up in. But if you're poor, success is defined by how far away from your own community you can get. Now, what we know in in the research, both in neuroscience and psychology, is, is that that's actually toxic for people um, to and school becomes this kind of wedge, right? That it's like, if I am choosing to do well in school, I'm choosing to distance myself from my cousin on the corner, from my own family, from my own community, from my own neighborhood. And many children um, e- either don't want to do that or, or literally won't do that because their family is one of the leading protective factors in their life. And so the school narrative about, and this, this happened to me when I was growing up, like I literally would have teachers say to me that I'm the youngest of seven kids. And they would say to me, you're not like your older brothers and sisters. And they would say, you can use school to get out of here. And, right. and, and, you know, even when I was young, I would, I, I stopped trusting those teachers because one, I was just like my older brothers and sisters they just didn't know because they didn't live in our neighborhood. They didn't. They weren't around after dark to know. Right. right. And two, um, I didn't want school to teach me how to escape poverty. I didn't want school to teach me how to escape my family. I wanted school to teach me how to end poverty, not for myself, right? But I wanted school to teach me how to end suffering in my community because. When I saw people in my community suffering, I knew it wasn't right. And I knew it wasn't their fault. And it's not that like individual choices don't matter. Of course they matter, right? But um, I think that that we can design school pedagogy, school curriculum, school culture in a way um, that reflects the material conditions of people's lives and, and, and gets greater investment from children and families because... The, the promise isn't, hey, you can get out of here, right? But the promise is that if you study, then the whole community can rise up. And when, mm. as a teacher, you know, working in East Oakland, when, when that was the, the premise of the pedagogy, the buy-in, the commitment, the, the, the work ethic was exponentially higher in my classes and in the programs that we were running than they were in, in parallel classes that had the, the more traditional message that you can use school to escape. 
Yeah, Jeff, I, I don't know you that well, but it's just such a powerful statement, the story you just told, because it's like those teachers probably meant that as a compliment, right? Like, you're smart, get out of here, you know, go do something. And and then instead, you've kind of taken your your life and said, no, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to make things better through education. And and so, I mean, that's kind of why we are where we are right now and having the discussion, why you have your book, Equality or Equity. I mean, so I want to kind of take that and, and pivot to like, all right, you've been studying this and you've dedicated your life to to making this right in, in less affluent communities around the country. So like, what's the fix? Like, that's a big lift. That's a big ask. Yeah, it is a big ask. Um, and and it's worth it. And the, the, the you know, if you, in, in the last 10 years or so, um, my gaze in my research really expanded and I, and I started looking and I was particularly drawn to um, public health data, social epidemiology, neuroscience, because they were having like massive research breakthroughs in, in, in that field. Um, and what, what we're finding in those fields is that pretty um, conclusive evidence, not, not pretty conclusive, conclusive evidence that if um, if we aren't attentive to the well-being of a child, then the other things that we're um, you know that we're aiming for in school and in kind of you know social outcomes for children, they're not going to happen. And this isn't because a, a child is the is the child of immigrants or is a you know a, a, a person of color. If if you put um, you know wealthy white kids in the kind of radicalized inequality in schools and the broader society, they would have the same kind of life outcomes that any other kid has. And, and you don't have to go, you know, and so it's a, a lot of the conversation um, does tend towards a racial analysis, which I, which makes sense because of the very clear medical evidence about how race affects life outcomes. Um, but if you go to the Appalachians where you have multi-generational white entrenched poverty, you see the same kind of educational outcomes that you see in poor and working class communities of color. So um, the, the, I think that the lift has to be uh, a national acknowledgement um, that what we are doing is not working unless, unless the goal of our public education system is to have multi-generational entrenched social, political, academic inequality. If that's... So if that's, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I almost get this like little hint of like, maybe that is the goal is kind of what you're saying. Well, if that's, again, back to the history. Right. The, the, it, the design of schools was never to create a pathway into um, uh, like el elite spaces for poor and working class children. And, you know, the, the original design of schools, the, the, the metaphor that I use is often with teachers and, you know, principals and school leaders, I say, how many of you own a home? And, you know, some cross section of them raise their hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then I ask them, okay, well, when you bought your home, what was the first thing you had inspected? And they always say the foundation. And I say, well, why the foundation? Why not the roof? Why not the double pane windows? Why not the state of the art kitchen? And, you know, Logically, they say, because if the foundation's bad, then, and I make those other investments, I'm just throwing good money after bad because it's all coming in on itself. And 
I say, well, that's the challenge that we're facing in schools. Because we haven't examined the foundation of the project, Mm -hmm. we keep adding in, you know, smart boards and, you know, uh, uh, you know, new classrooms and new, but we're not examining the, the, the deeply flawed cracks in the foundation of the actual intent and purpose of the project. So, you know, the question was, well, this is a huge lift. What do we, it is right. And, and that starts with asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Why are we taking children from their families by law for 13 consecutive years for six to eight hours a day? Why are we doing that? And if the reason for that is to get high test scores and to matriculate onto four-year universities, then I would say carry on. As a parent and as a longtime educator, and as a researcher and a community member, um, I want those things for my kids and for other kids. I do. But if my kids have those things and they don't love themselves for who they are, they don't understand their ancestors, they don't understand their community, they don't understand their culture, um, then they're going to be sick anyway. College won't save them. A professional job won't save them. So, and we know this in the research, right? That the research is very clear that if children don't have a sense of love and belonging, if they don't have a sense of self-love and self-esteem, they cannot, this is a biological imperative, okay? They cannot consistently self-actualize. And so the if we if we go back and we look at the history of public schools, there was nothing and present day, there's really nothing that says that that's the purpose of schools. So for me, the pivot is to to ask that question, okay? What is the purpose of schools? Now, what, what I see in the research, what I see in the best of practice is, is pretty clear that the purpose of schools is the well-being of the child. And the promise of schools should be that when you come pick your child up, they will be more well for their six to eight hours with us than they were when you dropped them off. That's Mm -hmm. our problem. And what we know in the research is that that, those are the preconditions to them reading well, writing well, doing math, being engaged. And we also know that in the absence of that, when children are not well, then they literally can't do those things anyway because their body and their brain won't let them because they're they're not well. So for me, that's that's the we, we got to get to the foundation and say that we have this project in this nation to make sure that all of our children are well, that all of our children and this is goes for affluent white kids too, right? That they that they truly love themselves, they understand themselves, they understand their community, they understand their responsibility as a civically engaged citizen in a democracy. And you can teach every single one of the state and national standards towards that purpose. But if you don't, then you keep teaching the state and national standards without that purpose. And you can't, you can't, if, you know, if, if, if you add on wellness, 
or well-being to the existing foundation, it, 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 it doesn't transform anything because the, the way in which I explain what's happening in schools is you effectively have a, a, a plate, a teacher's plate, a principal's plate, a superintendent's plate is filled to the brim mm-hmm. with stuff that we ask schools to do. And then you say, and we want a wellness initiative. We want a well-being initiative. We want a you know whole child initiative. And everybody's like, yes, that I mean, who's against that? Right. Right. So we add it on and we stack it on top of the already overflowing plate. And if you play that metaphor out, what's the first thing to fall off the plate? Yeah, the wellness initiative. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so when push comes to shove, when it comes time for testing, when it comes time for all these things that are deeper in the foundation of the plate, mm-hmm. it trumps. So the, the solution is we've got to clear the plate. And I mean that literally. I mean, why everything's off the board. Let's start with a blank slate. Okay. And let's ask the question, what is the purpose of public schools? And and, and I think that the way we try to do this in schools, this, these kinds of reforms is deeply flawed. And it's why they don't work because we try to do it in a sweeping initiative that everybody's going to be on. And I don't think that's the right move. The right move is for us to, to slow down and to learn, right? And to create lab school environments where we test this out because if if you don't do that then the only thing you can do is tweak and you know david tyack wrote a book tinkering towards utopia right we're n- this if you look at the data right this ship is going down <laughs> right we are not healthy and if you move deck chairs around on the titanic which is mostly what happens mm-hmm. on, in schools uh, under the auspices of change and reform the titanic still goes down right? We've got to fix the whole. And I think the way that you do that is to start with a a real commitment to to research and experimentation on a small scale and learn, learn what will it take for us to really transform, not tweak, but transform our public school system at at a community kind of regional level. And then take that learning to start scaling it little by little inside of a district or a community. Public education is such an institution. Um, there's a lot of red tape. But let's just pretend, just humor me here. If if Jeff had a magic wand and he could just, you know, just cut through all the red tape and just build his own school, it, like you said, like clear the foundation off, what would school look like in inner city Oakland or inner city San Francisco or in Appalachians? I mean, how would it be better if you were designing it? Well, so first of all, we did it. (laughs) We actually did that in, in East Oakland and we're in, we're finishing our eighth year um, with, with a school that attempted to take that question on. Um, And so my kind of um, my, my, uh, larger, more extensive answer is that that that's what really why I wrote the book, um, and why a group of us have been r- really trying to investigate um, and and gain a deeper understanding about about that very question. And so I think you know, generally speaking, that the school that would 
um, take on that challenge would be community responsive. So meaning that um, it would it would be a reflection of the community it was serving. And we'd, we'd have to get away from this kind of one size fits all equality model, right? Um, to an equitable model where, it, because in an equitable model, you get what you need when you need it. But that would require the school to first really understand the needs of the community and have the school day, the budget, the hiring, the curriculum reflect that reality, which, by the way, is precisely what happens in wealthy private schools. True. Is that, right? They, they've, they've have a very in, clear intent and purpose. And then everything they do, all the, the children's experiences there reflect that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not like I'm talking about some like radical new idea, right? right? This is what wealthy communities demand for their children. Um, and because they can. And I think that, that if, if we're going to do it in our community, like when we tried to do it in our community, that, that was, that was the approach. And, um, and there was, and it is so hard. Let me just say that it is really hard. It's really painful. It's really challenging to do it precisely for the reasons that you said, because there's so much bureaucracy and there's so much red tape and there's so much kind of quasi oversight, um, that really, um, minimizes, um, and interrupts the ability of a school to be dynamic. And that is something that this, um, this country's got to address that schools, schools can't become community responsive unless we are willing to rethink the way in which we govern, fund, and support schools. It's just not possible. So, you know, I don't, I don't point the fingers at schools for, for what's happening every day, right? This is, this is a national problem. Mm-hmm. That, that we're not being honest about. And I think that, that that has to be the first step is that we just say, you know what? Like this, this is dysfunctional. This is not working for our nation's children. And, and if we can be honest about that, then, then we stop the tweaking and, the, and, and we start really examining why that is and what kind of fundamental changes would need to happen and, you know, we did that at, at Roses and Concrete. We're eight years in um, and at the five year mark um, when, when, you know, I really felt like in a lot of ways um, and, and to a person that came to visit our school, we had visitors literally from all over the world. Um, they would say, I've never seen anything like this before. That's really cool. And again, that's Roses and Concrete. That's the name of the school that you all created in Oakland, right? Yeah. And then five years in, we hit the red tape. And if, oh, really? The, yeah. What, what was that? Well, so the, the political wind shifted in the district. There was uh, a, a, sh- a shift in the, the school board. And then suddenly the new school board was like, well, we want to see your test scores. Mm. And right, we want to see your data. And that was such an important learning for us that like, oh, like, I mean, we knew this, right? But when you're building a new school, like you're sucking out of a fire hose a right. lot of the time, right? right. Um, but um, but the, the big learning there for us was, oh, right, like data is the coin of the realm. And if we're really going to 
press into this conversation, we have to have good metrics that are showing how the progress and the growth of our children and our families on the things that, that we are saying we care about. And so the, the coming out of that, so we're now in our eighth year, we ended up merging back with another school. So the project continues. It just, it just looks differently now. So we're now called OAK or Oakland Academy of Knowledge. We're the district's lab school for, for ethnic studies in elementary school. And there's a lot of like amazing, beautiful things going on that we, we brought from roses that we learned from roses. But I think the, the big takeaway for me was, um, led us to uh, myself and, 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 and a group of my colleagues, um, to create, um, something that we called the youth wellness index, which was, is a metric that schools can use, um, if their foundational purpose is the wellness of children to create data that actually examines the degree to which the pedagogy, the curriculum, the climate, the culture um, is actually moving the meter on the well-being of children. And so the project that we're um, in the process of designing now um, is to take on what I said earlier. We're, we're, we're going to partner with three schools um, somewhere in the United States. We haven't selected them yet um, that commit to repurposing themselves. And saying that we, our primary goal is the well-being of the children. And then we're going to work with them over three years, study what that kind of transformation costs, what it looks like, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. Um, and then we're going to use the Youth Wellness Index to, to produce data that looks at how those kinds of transformations um it improve the, the overall well-being of children in a community and then tie that back to the, the, the state and national academic outcomes that people want to see to basically validate, because we don't have the, the metrics or the tools in schools right now to align with the research. The, the research says that if kids are more well, they'll read better. Mm -hmm. If kids are more well, their attendance will be better. The research says that, right? But we don't have a metric to measure the wellness of children in schools. And so we don't have the, the, the leading indicators that we need to be looking at to know how we have to tweak what's going on in a school. All we have is the lagging indicators, which is the, the academic indicators. And if you talk to any systems transformation person, they'll tell you, you can't transform a system by looking at outcome data because you don't know all you know is where they ended up you don't know why they got there right what you have to have is the leading indicators of youth development or you have to have process data like what did we do that led to those outcomes because you got to change what you do to change what you get and without that kind of data schools are flying blind they're just they're literally guessing about why the outcomes are what they are. And it doesn't need to be that way. We, we, we have the tools, um, we have the understanding to, to make these kind of changes. What we don't have yet is a commitment to, to real innovation. And that's kind of where we're trying to take this conversation is to, because I think the question you're asking, that's the question. That's the question I'm, the, I really am curious and wonder about because 
I've been in so many amazing classrooms that I know it's possible. I know it doesn't have to be this way. But what we have in the research right now is really good evidence about what it looks like in an individual classroom, what it looks like in a program. What we don't have is good research evidence about what it looks like across an entire institution. And so that's really where we're trying to take our project. It's called the Repurposing Schools Project um, to begin to try to answer that question. Well, it's such an important topic. And I love what you guys are doing. And, and just even bringing awareness to maybe those of us who don't see, like, again, what you see is, is so important. I think that's just like step one for some people who maybe don't realize or they're, they're okay with their bubble, but they don't right. acknowledge the fact that the, there's other people in the country in this bigger system that are struggling and don't have the resources and the things that they need to be, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think the important part for those communities is to, is to commit to an understanding that every bubble pops. That's a fair point. No doubt. And you know what, what we got to get out of the bubble, right? Cause right. it won't protect us forever. It won't protect our kids. No and doubt. it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, again, the book is um, Equality or Equity Toward a Model of Community Responsive Education. If somebody wants to find this book, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, so Harvard Press is the publisher. So you can go there. And of course, it's available on all your you know Amazon type outlets. Got it. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, this has been such a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I'm ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Wellness. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Wellness. <laughs> I figured that was coming. Uh, what What does every child deserve? Wellness. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Whew. Their own wellness. What's the best gift to give an educator? Autonomy. Which teacher changed your life? Mm. Sister Janita. How so? Um, she was the first teacher that ever asked me what happened to me. Most of my teachers were asking me what was wrong with me. Hmm. That's, that's deep. So yeah, I mean, how did that, how did that read differently for you? That question doesn't presume I'm broken. Right. It presumes that there's broken things in my life. And um, it made me feel like she actually cared about what was happening to me rather than trying to fix me. I, I think that um, that a lot of the educational paradigm has been about fixing broken kids. And um, I don't think our children are broken. I think the systems that we've built and, and put them inside of are broken. You don't fix the child, you fix the school. And, um, and she was the first teacher I ever had that, um, that both asked me that question and then, and then she taught in that way, right? She taught like none of us were broken, even though, you know, many of us were wounded and were vulnerable and were really hurting. Um, she never, she, she never treated us like. Um, we were incapable or pobrecitos, right? It's, and this is why I referenced Tupac, you know, that he, he talks about the rose that grew from concrete. 
And he says, when you see a rose growing in the concrete, you don't question its damaged petals. You celebrate its tenacity and its will to reach the sun. That's cool. And I think she um, she acknowledged that I had damaged petals, and but she didn't leverage that, right? It was like, I see that, right? Part, I'm not going to ignore that. But what I also see is your tenacity and the will to reach the sun. And so I'm going to start there. I'm going to start with the glass half full. And we'll get to the, the half empty side. We'll get to the, the woundedness. But let's, let's start with how amazing it is that you even make it here. Good stuff. And, and last question for you. Which book have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? Ooh, um, I'm, I'm going to go with The Sum of Us. The Sum of Us? Who, and who wrote that? I've heard the of it. The Sum of Us. So it's... Um, you know, I can look it up real quick. It's Heather McGee. Okay. Um, but it's it's the best analysis I've seen um, of both the promise of equity in our society um, and, and all of the obstacles, historical, legal obstacles that we've put in the way of, of, of making that a reality. And just as a plug for her work, she has an amazing podcast that, that, you know, does more work around the content of the book that I, that I also really recommend for people. Excellent. Again, uh, you're listening to Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, if somebody wants to track you down online, like, do are you like to hang out on Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? I, I do a little bit of social media on Twitter, but um, best way to get me is just uh, shoot me an email. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time. All right. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>